You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the word of God and it's powerful. And we've just, we've just heard something of that power today. So when we open the Bible, we're actually hearing from God. And today we're going to open the Bible at Romans 5. And we're going to hear from God first directly from his word and then through the words of CS. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Almighty, we do pray for your help. Father, for you know that we need help in the hearing. We need help in the responding. And we need help in the understanding of your word. And Lord, how much help I do need right now that your Spirit, Father, can provide, and I, I look to you, that you will enable me to keep you in the speaking, and that we would glorify you with our hearts. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, every time we cry, every time I cry, I feel pretty sad for the flight crew at a very start. At a very start, the, the flight crew would go through the routine of explaining the safety procedure. Okay, that, that's your um, inflatable down there. This is what you do. You pull this, you blow that, you clap your hands, and now decompression, this is what's going to happen. Those are the lights. Now, how many people do you think were paying attention. I like to watch that because at that point people will be looking at the devices, flipping at the magazine, or closing the eyes. Nobody would pay attention. But just imagine you are on such a flight, you're one of those. Not paying attention at all. But 
one hour into your flight, there's this announcement. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a bit of an issue with lost all hydraulics. The crew would come out and explain the safety procedure. And once more, the same message is given. Now, this time, you hang on to every word. You can't take your eyes off them. You know why? Now you believe that it is a matter of life and death. Now, I'm going to say a few things that seem so familiar that you might have heard a thousand times, and I hope you have heard this before. But I also pray that you will realize that what this passage is talking about is a matter of life and death, of eternal life and hell itself. And if you believe that, you would like to pay attention to the matters that Romans chapter 5 tells us about. And we have a number of points here. And first of all, this passage tells us that we have been justified through faith. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Now, what does it mean to be justified? Now, it is quite common for people to say that to be justified means to be in a court of law where you are declared to be not guilty. Now, there is a lot of truth in that, but I don't think that's all there is to being justified. If you are in a court of law and you are declared to be not guilty, it means that there is not enough evidence to charge you. You can go free because they cannot convict you. I was watching a Netflix movie. Are, are we allowed here at Cross and Crown to be watching that? All right, I can tell you the story. <laughs> now, now, it's called Lincoln Lawyer. And there's this client who says, look, I don't just want, we don't just want to win the case in a court of law, we must win it in the court of public opinion. Uh, Nikki Heller say, look, I tell you what, we can win it, this case, in the court, but we can't win it in the court of public opinion because all it, you know, it doesn't mean that you are not guilty. It, it just means that you've just been given a verdict of not guilty. Whether you are right or wrong, I don't care. 
and, and I can't win it for you out there, notwithstanding that it will affect the share prices of your company, because your relationship would have changed with regards to your shareholders. Now, and same it is uh, in the court of law, it doesn't mean that you are somehow innocent. And here's the marvelous thing about justification. To be justified, it's not just that you be pronounced not guilty, it is to mean that you have been announced and declared to be righteous. And you see that in the context previous in chapter 4. It is to be credited the righteousness of Christ itself. Verse 24, you have been credited righteousness. It is to declare that not only are you not guilty, you have the righteousness of Christ himself. It is to have your relationship not just restored and in some strange ways when we look at scripture to be elevated before God because you have been given nothing less than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a good Presbyterian and there's nothing better for a Christian to be such and you would know the shorter catechism, which asks the question, what is justification? Justification is, any good phrases here? An act of God's grace wherein He pardons all our sin and accepts us as righteous in His sight for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. No judge in this world, when they release you from a court, says to you, you are absolutely righteous, just not guilty. So, God treated Jesus Christ on the cross as if He lived your life so that He could treat you as if you have lived His. Now, that's the glory of justification. If you understand that, if I understand that, you believe that, it transforms your heart. It does to realize that. And, and because it goes on to say, we, we have been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. You know, today, people long for peace. I was sharing the gospel about three weeks ago with uh, this non-Christian uh, couple, young couple, and the man said, peace is very important to me. I long for peace. You know where a lot of people would go for peace? They go to Byron Bay. Bay. Alright? I don't know what's the equivalent 
of Barren Bay in Victoria. And now you go there, you walk around barefooted. You try to grow a ponytail. And you go to wonderful retreats. My wife and I drove up there recently, by the way. And there's they, this Barren Bay Peace Retreat where you go through the forest of tranquility. All right? And when you enter, they'll take away all your devices, your mobile phone and such, because you are here for peace, to experience peace. Right, we did not go in there because it cost us $750 a night, uh, a person, and we decided not to. Now, the biblical sense of peace is much more than stretching exercises. Essential oil. Calm walk through the forest of tranquility. Listening to the, the water flowing through the creek. And I asked a non-Christian whether you understand what peace with God is. You know what he said? Oh, I have peace with God. Don't worry about uh, what you're about. I already have peace with God. So I ask him, what if God is not at peace with you? You know, when the Bible talks about the peace with God, it is God's initiative making peace with you. That's the peace of God. To say that you have peace with God because you feel peaceful within you is like a three-year-old coming to uh, Heisen Fury or Mike Heisen or whatever and say, I'm at peace with you. It doesn't make any sense. Or you walk through uh, a safari, you're confronted with a roaring lion, and you say, I am at peace with you. Understand this. If you read Romans, when you get to chapter 2, there are charges against you by God. God is not at peace with you. God is wrathful at you. And the only way you can have peace with God is God taking the initiative and making peace with you. And there is no other way. No other way. And so I, I asked this man, what if God is not at peace with you? And he replied, I have done my best in doing what's good. And I asked him, but what if your best is not good enough before God? He replied, well, I've done my best. If that's not good enough with God, that's not my problem. That's God's problem. Now, I must say that when I heard that, was, there was a sense of outrage within me. I, 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 I wanted to hit him in the face. <laughs> but I, I'm a Christian, and I'm a pastor. 
And I thought about it, instead of feel, feeling outraged, I realized that that guy actually made sense. Think about it. It is God's problem simply because your best is not good enough. It is God's problem. And God dealt with it graciously to save us, to do something for us that we could not do. Now, it's not God's problem that it was God's responsibility. It is our sin, but God took it upon Himself to deal with our sins. So, we have peace with God through, look at the verse, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, God has done something. And listen, what else? God has given to us because we have been justified by faith. We have we are told here, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. What it means is this. Your relationship with God begins on the basis of grace. That grace, that unmerited favor, based entirely upon what Christ has done. And we have gained access into this year of God's unrelenting grace. The way of relating with God on the basis of what Christ has done that's grace, in which it says, you now stand. Now, that's a very powerful word that sometimes we miss. Uh, the, the sense here is that you, you stand there permanently. You are perpetually before God standing in the sphere of grace. You Never move out of grace. You begin as a Christian because of grace and you continue on the basis of grace. You live day by day, moment by moment. Every breath that you take is on the basis of grace. And so as John Stott, uh, put it in his uh, little commentary. He said, we are not like those courtiers who come into uh, the presence of the king and he goes out and he comes in and he goes out. No. We stand before God, belonging in his presence, standing on grace as children of God. Nothing as Paul would go on to say in chapter, nothing will ever separate you from that love of God. So what it means is this. How many of you here have really, really bad day as a Christian? 
I do. And to my own alarm, uh, one Saturday, while I was preparing uh, my sermon, I actually got into a really, uh, it began with, like a nigger with my wife, and it ended up with an outrageous quarrel about absolutely nothing. And now when I look back at it, that insanity was at play. And that was the evening before I came to church on Sunday to preach as a pastor. And during the day, I, you know, I, I probably slandered somebody and spoke unkindly. And I was less than through school about another matter. And I was uh, you snarky know, against uh, uh, the woman who sold me a piece of pork at Eastwood. That was a bad day. It makes me question whether... You know, the grace of God is at work in my life. Now, on days like that or other days in your life, this is what we remind ourselves. On your worst day, the grace of God is not revoked. It is activated. It is magnified. Now, those of you who have read to the very end of chapter 5, you realize what I'm talking about, where sin increased, what happened? Grace increased all the more. On your very worst day, where you wonder, God, can you stand me? Do you show me grace? The Bible says, on your very worst day, it is grace is not revoked. It is especially activated. Oh, it's like, oh, you, do, you guys don't have a good bridge here. You know, you have those concrete things across that river. Ugly. <laughs> In Sydney, we have this grand bridge called the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I tell you what, the Sydney Harbour Bridge will bear your weight. You walk across it, and you jump around and thought, is this going to hold? I tell you what, it will hold. Millions have crossed that bridge, and it has held. And some who crossed that bridge had been the chief of sinners. The bridge held. And I would walk on that bridge, trusting the integrity of that bridge. And so it is the grace of God. Now, for those of you who read widely, you will understand that I've just updated an illustration from Spurgeon. Yeah? I just think Sydney Harbour Bridge is greater than London Bridge, which fell last month, as you know. What I mean. So, uh, back to grace. Uh, grace, beginning. Grace, presently. And grace, forever. Grace, wonderful grace. And that's what we need to hear. And then, Paul goes on to say that we have that, that this word that occurs three times. 
in this last bit. And that bit is hope. Not only so, we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope is a powerful thing. It is an absolutely powerful thing. It is like that last week of school when you were in high school. I remember the last week of school. There is a certain likeness because of the promise of the holiday. It is like planning for a holiday. Even though you are not there yet in the destination, the mere planning for the holiday transforms your day. And you bring something of what belongs to the future, the happiness of the future, something of that is now taken into the present experience. It is the confident expectation that something utterly good and joyful is going to happen to you and invade your whole being. So, why? while your present circumstances, uh, circumstances may remain the same today, you go about your day as if you're walking on air because of Your present is affected by the future, your future, because of hope. Going back to the plane, you are seated on the plane. You walk down, first of all, the business class, right? They are showing off, having their champagne. And then you see somebody seated there. He wasn't enjoying his champagne. He was in business class, and you look down his uh, uh, wrist, there's a, there's a chain, there's a cuff to a well-dressed, suited gentleman next to him. He's on the way to jail. You go further back, and there you are at coach cram, uncomfortable, dodgy food. But you are joyful. You know why? Because you know where you're heading. You're going back. You're going to see your family. You're going to see faces that you long to see who love you. Where you're going affect your present experience. Now, if you understand your hope, if you know where you're going, you may be seated in business, you may be seated in coach. Things may not be going so well to you, but if you know where you're heading, 
it would change your present experience. It would give you even joy. And if you do not know where you're going, and worse still, you know you're going to jail. It doesn't matter whether you're in business class or not. You despair. Now, how, how can we be sure that our hope is real and sure? It tells us. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is secured by the love of God. How can we be sure that our hope not going to let us down? That we will not be disappointed? I can't help telling you this little thing too. Do you know there's such a thing called the Paris Syndrome? Do you know what the Paris Syndrome is? People going to Paris, especially Japanese, thinking of a city of romance. Walking down the street, stepping on dog pools. And they were so devastated, they have this syndrome. They, they, they fall apart inside. They, they call it a Paris. It's, so, it's apparently common enough to be called a syndrome. How do you know this, that your hope is not something that's going to let you down and put you to shame? Because you put so much of your heart into this hope. The Bible tells us. It is guaranteed by the Word of God, secured by His love, held together by His love. It's been poured into our heart. If I had gone on to the uh, next segment, I would explain a bit more about that. God has proven His commitment to your hope by sending His one and only Son all the way to the cross to secure it. And God who does not lie will keep His promise or God ceases to be God. We will enter into that hope. We will be fully transformed. We will enter into that glory but presently there is a tension, isn't it? Back to verse 3, not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, what it says briefly is that even your suffering works for your hope and towards your glory. It means that not a tear will be wasted, but be turned by God into glory. You are shaped down here to fit right up there. And it is a wonderful thing, the Bible says, when believers persevere 
suffering. A couple of months ago, I two of our members went up to the church in front and sang us a song. It's a very simple song. He and his wife sang, Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself to us. Thank you, Lord, for making us what we are. You know our needs, so we come. So come, fill our hearts. We pray that we might serve you only, live our life to you each day. Now, why is that precious? Because that same couple, a few years ago, was absolutely shattered through the loss of his nine-year-old son. A brilliant, promising, bright, future school captain sort of a boy. But one day, diagnosed with a heart or liver condition, and we prayed as a church, and it God seemed to be answering. There was a liver transplant miraculously. It seemed to be going well, and then bang! He was gone. I've never seen someone shattered parents the way I saw that couple in our church, and they were absolutely despondent. I didn't know how they're going to pull out of that. And to see them eventually, one day, a few years later, coming out, thank you, Lord. We want to serve you and live our life for you. Now, when Christians look back at those suffering and see yourself not just surviving, thriving. The only conclusion is this, that your faith has been tested and that your hope is real. You see, every pain promises something glorious that a glory is coming. Now, for some, for now, some dreams may share, may, may stay shattered. Some relationships remain broken. Some scars never fade. But when Jesus, when Jesus comes in glory, He will make a grave for all our griefs. Now, I don't know the plot line of my life or your life, but this I know, that if you are in Christ, that plot line will end in glory. I don't know where the plot line of your life will live, but if you are in Christ, that plot line will end in glory. So, how do we respond to all that? Paul tells us we boast in it. Or the older English, we exult in it. It is to speak confidently. It is to speak joyfully. It is even to speak loudly. That's what it means. Do I rejoice in the hope of God? I pray I would grow in that joy. 
You know, you do. If you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, my marriage is not as good as it should be. My kids did not turn up, turn out the way I hope. My work is not as rewarding as I thought it would be. But I am completely forgiven. I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And God has given me unrelenting grace every day. And I am on the way to glory. Therefore, I will set my heart on these things. And I will exalt. I will rejoice. Amen? Let us pray. And so, Lord, we pray. You would enable our heart to believe. And not just believe, but to delight in these things and to rejoice greatly. So let this bear fruit in our life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.